Today's reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4b through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in that the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make, for, make him a helper, helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, not a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. So... What was the first thing that you ever remember naming or giving a name to? Maybe it was a toy. Maybe it was a pet. Maybe some object that your, your family told you. And when babies learn language, you know, one of the best parts about seeing language emerge in, in, in infants and children is seeing the names that they give to things, their own idiosyncratic language that they sort of make up. And that's part of what makes them so cute. And we have a lot of babies here this morning, um, so it's, we'll get to hear this, and I'm sure parents can resonate with this. And 
a near baby coming very soon uh, from the Wonderlick side of things. So this is, uh, she's here too, though. And uh, our, our youngest son, Gregory, he still, he still does that. He's still learning language, and he's still making things up. And just a couple months ago, he asked us this question. He said, where's my Gowie stay? And we said, where is your Gowie stay? What is a Gowie stay? And he has yet to answer that question. Um, but we thought it was so cute when he said it that to this day, we'll still ask him, Gregory, where's your Gowie stay? And then he'll tell you not to ask him that question. <laughs> but it's very cute, so we keep asking him where his Gowie stay is. And if you really want to make him angry, so angry he'll bite his hand, just keep asking him that question. Gregory, where's your Gowie stay? No! But it's so cute that he made up this word for this thing that we have no idea. We don't even know if he knows what it is. One of the first things that I remember naming, maybe the first thing I remember naming growing up was this cabbage patch doll that my mother made me. So this was back when, this was not like Xavier Roberts Target bought cabbage patch doll. This was back when you could buy the head to the cabbage patch doll. And then my mom was this great seamstress and she made the body. So my sister got a cabbage patch doll, so I was very jealous. And so my mom made sure that she made me a cabbage patch doll too. And uh, my cabbage patch doll that was Peter Alexander, that's what I named him. And I remember still he had this cute little gophers onesie or gophers, little old school Minnesota golden gophers uh, pajamas that we would wear. And Peter Alexander was so special to me because um, he was my kid. And so on Father's Day, I got to have Peter Alexander with me in bed and I got to get breakfast in bed because he was my child. (laughs) And I was his father. So as a young child, I mean, breakfast in bed, there's nothing better. So, um, and I ended up naming... My second son, Peter, but I don't think that was related at all to my Cabbage Patch doll. And he's Peter Olav, not Peter Alexander, so uh, let's not tell him that. But as we look at our passage this morning, in Genesis 2, there's a bajillion things we could say about it, but, but, but uh, where it fits into sort of this little sermon series we're going to do over the course of just the next couple of weeks is, is we're going to look at naming and what's happening and, and how really naming is intrinsic to what it means to be human. But naming and names, they raise all sorts of questions. Like, is our name about our identity? Does it actually reflect who we are? Are names about power and authority? If you name something, is that part of your desire to control it or or to subjugate it? Are names about destiny? Do they sort of shape who we are? And and, and do they say something about who we're going to become? Or are names just these completely arbitrary things that we make up given custom or convention. And you know, who gets to name what and who decides? And so these are all fascinating. They are foundational questions that we're going to look at as we look at at, at naming in the earliest chapters of Scripture in, in Genesis and then a little bit in Exodus. And when we talk about names and namings, we're moving into potentially sort of treacherous ground and, and contested spaces. For a simple local example, um, let's just go down 36th Street, uh, a few blocks to the west, right? And, and so what is the name of that body of water? Is it Lake Calhoun? Is it Bidet Makaska? And the answer actually is still unresolved. Though we know that the name was changed and there was a lawsuit that was brought that, that questioned whether or not the relevant bodies who changed the name had the actual statutory authority to do so. And so if it's Lake Calhoun, does that mean that we're honoring a man in John C. Calhoun who was, you know, a racist, an apologist for slavery and and representative of the worst 
aspects of this great country's history? And does changing the name actually do anything to right those historical wrongs, or does keeping it in place actually force us to wrestle with the fact that that's just a part of our legacy? Or does changing the name, does it truly honor uh, the Native Americans who lived here before white settlers arrived? And this, is, is this actually the name that the lake would have been called, that they would have given it? And so when we ask these questions about names, and we we start to wrestle with the issues of names and naming, and maybe we start to feel our blood pressure rising. Maybe we start feeling anxiety or anger, even about having the conversation. Then, then it tells me that when we come to naming and names, we're touching on something sacred, something central, something important to what it means to be a human being living before God in God's world, which is right here what we see in Genesis 2. Now, Genesis 2 is sometimes referred to as the second creation story. We get the opening chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and it's this six days of creation that we get. Uh, uh, there's an order, and it, it all climaxes in a Sabbath rest. In Genesis 1, God simply creates by speech. There's this order, this rhythm, this symmetry. It's a, it's a universal cosmic scale of things. God is like a king on high who creates through a mere word and, and, and through that word can call forth billions of stars, millions of species of animals, and even image-bearing creatures like us. And so Genesis 1 is like God building a pyramid and, and human beings are right there at the apex. But Genesis 2 is very different. It's like God's drawing a circle and, and human beings are at the center. And Genesis 1 deals with the universal, but, but here in Genesis 2, it's, it's more particular. In Genesis 1, God brings order from chaos, and in Genesis 2, God is bringing life from a deserted place. In Genesis 1, God is the great and powerful king, creating by divine fiat, you know, let there be, and it was. And in Genesis 2, God is like a potter shaping clay. In Genesis 1, God is over and above, but in Genesis 2, God is down and in. In Genesis 2, God gets his hands dirty. And so we're going to examine Genesis 2 and, and, and see what we can learn from some of the names that we see here, what we can learn about God, about our relationship to God, about what it means to live as God's creatures in God's world. And so the first name I want us to look at actually comes right away, right at the beginning. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 4b. The Lord God. Now, when you read this in, in, in your Bible, it will have the word Lord in those you know, funny sort of weird capital letters, the big L and then the, the capital, you know, lowercase sort of O-R-D. And what's so unique about this name for God is, is that really this, this, this name, Lord God, it, it really only occurs in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, in the story of the garden. So it's this unique name right there at the beginning. And in Genesis 1, it just uses the generic word for God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's throughout the whole first chapter. But right here away, in the second creation story, we get the Lord God. And the Lord stands for Yahweh, the name that God himself will reveal to Moses for the first time at Mount Horeb, which we'll get to in just a few short weeks. And the, so the significance here cannot be missed. It, 
is that the same God who created everything, the creator God, and was intimately involved in giving shape and life and breath to all living things, especially human beings, the same God who made everything, the universal God, is the same God who entered into a particular relationship with a particular people, the people of Israel at a particular time in history. as his own special possession and treasured people. And so in the God of the Bible, we have the perfect combination of the universal and the particular, the transcendent and the imminent, the over and above and the down and in, the king and the artist. Already this magnificent combination of attributes is here, those that are, we meet most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the ground is already being prepared here for that encounter. And that God's own personal name is used right here in this chapter is, is so important. Lest we allow our concept of God to dissolve in some kind of philosophical postulate or abstract ideal or impersonal force, like God is the uncaused cause or the, the unmoved mover or the, the ground of all being. All that might be said of God but because God's own name is used here, the truest thing that we can say about the creator God, even from the very beginning, is that this God is personal and knowable in a personal way. God isn't a force that overwhelms us. God is a person who meets us and who desires to be in relationship with us. And so in Genesis 2, we meet a God who is on a first name basis with creation. That's the first name. Now, there's another name that's very familiar to us uh, uh, from this story, but it's, it, it's hidden in the, in the English translations of our text. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's a name hidden in, in that thar verse. And, and it's obscured for good reasons within the English translation of our text. But, but it says in Hebrew that the Lord God formed a man, an Adam, Adam, if you want to sort of put it in some kind of fancy Hebrew pronunciation. But God formed an Adam, that's the Hebrew word, from the dust of the ground, which is Adama, Adama. So an Adam from the Adama, a human from the hummus. That's sort of the, the pun that's being made. An, an earthling from the earth. And so right away, friends, we learn this thing about ourselves, is this, about this name. And don't take this the wrong way, but your name is dirt. Your name is dirt. Now, what does this mean, that our names are dirt? That we're dirt people, mud people. Now, the possibilities are they're almost endless, uh, but this is something that will not be missed by, by folks, and, and, and I think this point will really resonate with folks who are friends of, or fans of uh, Wendell Berry, that great you know, Kentucky poet and author and farmer and environmentalist, something that he has not tired of reminding the modern world of that, that many of us have forgotten at least over the last two generations, is that there's this deep connection that has always existed between human beings and the earth. We've just found ourselves since, you know, maybe the 1950s in a place where we can forget that. And so for millennia, you know, almost all of human existence was tied 
to the ground and to the land and what it could provide for us. And so in losing that connection and that understanding, I think we've lost something God-given that makes us human. And it's only because we lost that 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 we can talk about nature as something different and abstract that we need to get back to. You know, go back to nature. uh, You know, even the Minneapolis parks have signs that say, nature that way. And go to the park and you get to nature. But the rest of life is sort of separated from that. When I go to my house, I'm not in nature anymore. Or we can talk about the environment in abstract terms. I care about the environment as if it's something different and separate from us and, and sort of abstracted from the physical places in which we lived, that, that we're detached, alienated from the places and spaces where we actually live. But what Genesis 2 tells us is that to be human is to be formed by God and to be earthbound to a particular place. From the dust we came and to the dust we shall return. And so that ought to make us humble. It ought to make us rooted. It also ought to make us grounded. And being dirt is not something to be ashamed of. It's a source of pride because only of the, the Adam, the dirt person, does it say that, that God both formed him from the ground like a potter shaping clay, that the verb for to form here is the same as that of a potter. But then God breathed into him the very breath of life. And so we are, are, are dirt creatures, earthbound creatures who have been brought to life with God's breath. And so we are creatures that are body and soul, flesh and spirit, and we are the only creatures for whom that is true. And that's the wonder and the frustrating paradox of what it means to be human. That we are earth creatures filled with divine breath. We are pulled down and lifted higher. And we know the pain that can come from living in that tension. But that's who we are. So our first name was Lord God, our second name, Adam. And the third name comes in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the third name is Eden. And, and, and in, in our translation, it's called a garden. But when the first translators came and, and put the Hebrew into Greek, they rendered the word for garden as paradisos, which, of course, is paradise, which was the word for a royal enclosed park. And so paradise brings to mind a sort of all of these wonderful, sensuous images of beauty. But the name here isn't the garden. It, it isn't paradise. It's, it's Eden. Now, does anyone, has anyone ever learned what Eden means? It means delight. It means pleasure. And so the key point in this name is this, is that God created us for delight. What is the chief end of man? Asked the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so what we can never lose sight of is that we were created for a purpose and that purpose was and is delight. In training for the uh, Twin Cities Marathon, I found that I have a lot of time by myself um, 
running uh, around <laughs> several hours sometimes. And so I've exhausted even my ability to listen to podcasts at this point. Like, I, there ain't enough podcasts to fill my feed that I want to listen to. And so uh, thank goodness for audiobooks, though. It's the golden age of audiobooks. It truly is. Audible.com. And so... Uh, and Sponsored. They are sponsoring this. They are sponsoring this. And you know, at night, I go to bed on a Casper mattress, and it just... No. <laughs> I don't, actually, but would be happy to if, you, if you're listening. I'd be happy to. There's the Labor Day, you know, but it's President's Day is where you really get the good deals. All right, but, uh, but <laughs> I digress. Anyways, so it's really nice to have long books, too, to listen to on, on Audible. And, and so I'm listening to right now, um, as one does, the, uh, this magnificent biography written by a Notre Dame, uh, retired Notre Dame professor now, uh, named George Marsden, on uh, none other than, than Jonathan Edwards, the, the great uh, American uh, theologian. And it's just, it's, a, it's truly a wonderful biography. And, and Edwards is such an interesting, fascinating, pre-American colonial uh, figure. And, you know, we know him, of course, we learn about him and the Puritans in school, and we learn about sinners in the hands of an angry God, that great sermon. Um, Edward's fascinating. He loves spiders, so that's why he uses that image of a spider dangling over a flame. But Edwards is just such an interesting guy. And so we think about him, and we think about the Puritans as these sort of angry, you know, God is mad at us that type, of pe- type of people. And there's some truth in that, for sure. Um, but what was fascinating to learn from listening to this biography, and just this week I heard this, that, that much of his early preaching and his first pastorate, he spent a lot of time trying to convince his serious, you know, scared of hell Puritan congregants that God didn't create them for fear, to just fear him, but actually to delight in his excellencies and tender mercies. And I doubt that there's many of us honestly here in this room that are actually fear God like, like they did for the fires of hell, afraid of the fires of hell like those 17th or early 18th century Puritans. But we still, too, need this reminder that we were created for delight and to find pleasure in God and pursue that pleasure in God, not delight or pleasure for its own sake or apart from God, but for God's sake. God created us to glorify and to enjoy him. Now we've got to skip over some names it kills me, especially the names of the trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot we could say about those names, but another time, another sermon. And the rivers, I mean, there's four of them. There's not much I can say about the names of the rivers. So now we're going to transition from, from names, things with names, to naming, the, the conferring of names. And when you get to that part of the passage where, 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 where God brings all of these creatures before Adam, uh, I thought of there's this great Bob Dylan song from his Christian, uh, his Christian uh, phase, um, Slow Train Coming, right? Uh, called Man Gave Name to the Animals. So if you want to hear a Bob Dylan version of this, listen to that today. Find it on, on Spotify. But here's what it says, Genesis 2, 18 to 20. Then the Lord God said, Lord God, first name. It's not good that the man, that the Adam should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
And here we see a, a simple but a profound truth about being human is that we were made to name. And that's actually one of our most powerful faculties that we possess. And what does it mean to name? It means that we can take things out into the world and, and, and we can, you know, put them in a group together, categorize them, say these things are like these other things and so they belong together. Or we can differentiate them and say, well, this thing is like that thing but not quite like it. That's a dog. That's a wolf. You know, that's a bear. That's a panda bear. We, 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 we do this fine combining and then differentiating. We see patterns. We see differences. We say this is like that, but not like that. And so human naming is our way of expressing and understanding our relationship to the world. It's our way from inside of our own minds to bringing order to a world that is outside of them. And then also to express what's inside of us and to convey that to the outside world. It's this truly remarkable, almost miraculous power that we possess. It's so powerful. It, 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 it has almost a Promethean quality to it. But unlike Prometheus, this isn't a fire that was stolen from the gods. It's a power that's given to us by God. Think about what God does here. God doesn't go, hey, Adam, here's all these animals, and this is their names, which God could have done. God invites human beings to use our own creative capacity in this world. God respects our freedom in this realm. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so we see here that God invites us to participate in his ongoing creation project of delight. That's what naming is primarily about. It's an expression of God-given creativity and freedom. And it's about bringing things into relationship with ourselves. It's all born of God's recognition that it was not good for the man to be alone, that we were created for community. And naming is part of, of searching for and finding that community, finding what our text calls a helper fit for him. And maybe we hear that phraseology, a helper fit for him, and we think that Adam is looking for a servant or sort of a personal assistant. But the words don't mean that at all. Do you know who is most frequently described as a helper in the Bible? God. And so this is not a derogatory term. This is not a term of subordination. And, and this word fit for him comes from the Hebrew, which means to face him to stand opposite him. And so really what Adam is looking for is a companion, a partner, to face him. He's looking for what he was created for, community. And so naming isn't about power over, it's about face-to-face -face relationship with. You know, Juniper, it's her first day in church today, welcome. You know, when you guys were trying to pick a name, did so you think, well, we want to have power and control over this child, so we're going to name her Juniper or Ben. <laughs> I got you, kid. Here's your name, you know. It's not about dominion over. It's because you love your child. And when you truly love someone, you give them a name. So you're not just saying, hey, kid. Hey, dog. Come here, you know. A name is an expression of relationship and love. 
Which brings us to the last and the most important naming of all. The Lord God puts a man in a, in a coma and forms a woman um, out of uh, his rib or his, his side. And I love what uh, the great English commentator on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry, says on the fact that the woman was formed out of his side. He says, she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. And no other ancient Near Eastern text contains any account of the creation of a primordial woman. The biblical text stands alone on that point. And the message is clear that, that men and women are created to be in relationship with one another before God in love and freedom and delight in him. And when the man sees the woman for the first time, the result isn't mere naming like it is with the animals. It's this explosion of poetry, which if you're reading this passage in our Bible, makes clear because they set it apart in the indentation. So we know we're not just looking at regular prose. We're looking at poetry. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so, and so this poetry shows another fascinating aspect of human language is, is that we can use it in ways that are not merely descriptive, but that are creative, right? That, that stretch language beyond its bounds of description or categorization. And language doesn't just, you know, name and bring order to the world, but it creates, it transforms it, it renews it in the image of something different. And so human beings aren't just linguistic creatures, we're poetical creatures. God made us that way because poetry, the stretching of language beyond what we think it's capable of doing is the only way that we can worship him. So back to these last names and naming. The English and the Hebrew, they both get at the pun that's happening here. Uh, you know, we'll call her woman because she came from man. In, in Hebrew, it's, let's call her Isha, woman, for she came from Ish, man. And so this last naming, it's not just the naming of the woman, but of the man himself. Because it's only as he is confronted by another who is distinct from him, yet his equal, that he can understand himself, who he truly is. Welcome back, kids. Welcome back. We're almost done. And that last naming is truly one of the most powerful lessons of all. We only truly know ourselves in relationship with others. And that's just how God made us. And our naming tells us that we were created by a personal God who knows us by name. We were created for community in order to delight in him and partner with him in the recreation of all things. And so for this reality, this partnering with God to work in God's world, Jesus has a name for this, the kingdom. And he has a name for this community that does it, the church. And he has a name for all of us who belong to him by faith, daughter and son. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.